Hi and welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Braith. This is a pre-recorded episode uh, which I did with Ben Jacobs last week, taking your questions and also uh, talking about the, the takeover, the departure of Steve Bruce and the potential new manager. And we are aware that potentially a new manager might be in place uh, as this episode goes out, uh, but it is half-term. I've got to do something with the kids. Ben, how are you? I'm good. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say my understanding is the new Newcastle manager is X. And then I'm going to give you every single name. <laughs> and you just edit in the correct answer. <laughs> well, to be honest, we never edit. We try not to edit these things. We'd rather have them as they are. And, and to be fair, um, you know, there is a short list now. We, we're led to believe. Um, well, let's start with that. We'll, we'll start to talk about it. Let's start with it. I mean, Steve Bruce is gone. First and foremost, there's two sides to, to the Steve Bruce story, I guess. And I, I guess I, I left the final word on on the Stephen Holly show last week with um, with the two journalists who played a pretty integral part in his time on Tyneside, Luke Edwards and Craig Hope. Luke Edwards, of course, you know, had a good relationship with Steve Bruce. I think the, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and he got the exclusive in the Telegraph, uh, the exclusive interview, which went live pretty much as soon as Steve's you know, uh, position at Newcastle was terminated and, um, you know, gave an insight into how Bruce felt with, you know, the abuse that he'd faced and always felt he was up against an impossible task. And then we had Craig Hope's take on it, which was that, you know, he had no sympathy for the guy. Um, you know, he was judged on his performances, which literally, you know, they just weren't good enough with the team. And, um, you know, uh, as far as he was concerned, he didn't deserve any sympathy. Where do you stand on that? Well, based on what we know, I've got little sympathy for him when you judge the data that you're looking at. In other words, Newcastle United are winless this season. And regardless of what went on last season, regardless of two mid-table finishes, I think virtually every manager at a club of Newcastle United size and ambition, even before the takeover, would have considered changing their manager if they got off to the start that they've done this season. So you can almost take the complexities out of it and say, if you just judge him on this season, then even if under Mike Ashley, there was too much patience given towards him, it's time for a change. But my sympathy lies in two aspects. One is that we don't really know what it was like to work under Mike Ashley. What we do know, it, it was a club left in limbo and that has to have its repercussions on the manager, on the strategy, on his spending power, on team morale, the uncertainty hovering over the football club in terms of when are the new owners coming in and ultimately the stress and pressure around that of Steve Bruce trying to plan would have naturally made his job very difficult and he was in that position of limbo for a lot longer because of the delay behind the takeover. And I think deep down, and I'm sure that he'll admit this over time, he's known for a while. He's known for really over a year that when a new ownership group came in, they didn't want to build upon that many remnants of Mike Ashley's tenure. So therefore, Steve was always going to go because of his connection with Mike Ashley and because things weren't quite going right on the football field either. So some things behind the scenes in terms of Steve's grievances at the football club may well be justified. And he was a little bit kind of scapegoated in the media with them calling for his blood, even if that was justified based upon the results. On a personal level, it was a very difficult time for him. And I think the last week as well, when the takeover was completed through to his final game was also tough on a personal level. So I sympathize on that human level because it must have been a stressful end to his tenure at Newcastle. But my lack of broader sympathy comes from the fact that he should never have been in that position. He should have gone far earlier. And really the new ownership group should have taken all the sentiment out of things and just cut ties with him, put Graham Jones in charge for the game against Tottenham, forgot about the thousandth game milestone. And then I think he'd have had a lot less of my sympathy because as many Newcastle fans point out, he leaves with a big payoff. He leaves by mutual consent. So it's not a kind of at least officially humiliating style sacking. So it is difficult to sympathise with him in too many aspects. But on that human level, just a small part of me 
doesn't like the way that his exit was manufactured over a long period of time. And then, even though the axe was hanging over him, it was kind of suspended for a week, seemingly just to let the consortium settle, to make them appear not that cutthroat, and to get him to that 1,000th game. And I didn't like that final week of his time at Newcastle United. That gave me a bit more sympathy for him. Mm. Interesting. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the, it's done now. We can't do anything about it. I, I agree in the sense that, you know, these people aren't used to running football teams. The only person who has a or football clubs, the only person who has experience of it on the, the current board is Jamie Rubin, of course, <clears throat> in his time with Queen's Park Rangers. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess had, you know, Steve Bruce won his thousandth game and we got our first three points on the board, it would have been a different story. But, you know, it, it wasn't to be performance other than the first 10 minutes was pretty bleak. And, um, you know, the axe fell and he's gone now and, and he, he goes into the history books alongside Gordon Lee, uh, Rude Hullet and uh, Joe Kinnear, I think, really, uh, as opposed to going alongside the likes of Joe Harvey, Kevin Keegan and, and Sir Bobby. And I guess, you know, it was all part and parcel of the Mike Ashley era and probably a rather fitting manager for the Ashley era to end on. Yeah, I think fitting because he fit with how Ashley wanted a football club to be run. He was ultimately prepared to some extent to put up with the level of secrecy, the lack of transparency, the lack of budget. And maybe some of that was down to the fact that it was his boyhood club. And some managers, I think, just get a bit of a thrill from being the boss that kind of comes into a period of adversity and then gets a club out of relegation, gets a club to mid-table and says, I've done a great job. Neil Warnock is another good example of that. Some would say Roy Hodgson at times during his career as well. And definitely Sam Allardyce, of course, also with connections with Newcastle United. But I think the key word for me is just ambition. And Mike Ashley didn't have it and Steve Bruce didn't have it. And when you don't have the ambition, you settle for this mediocrity and then when you fall beneath the mediocrity into, in this case, a relegation battle, when you get back up to mediocrity, everyone praises you, which is why those that don't watch Newcastle United week in, week out, perhaps think that finishing in 13th and 12th is a good job, given Newcastle's circumstances, given Bruce's budget, given the pandemic. And that may be true in the sense of when you get so far into a hole, if you claw your way out of it like they did at the back end of last season taking that run of the last 10 games or so in an isolated fashion and annoyingly, particularly that big win over Leicester, when you only look at that, you say, great, but there was no rhyme or reason to it. There was no consistency to it. So when Leicester under Pearson went on a similar run and had their own great escape, that momentum, that belief, those foundations that he laid part led to Leicester winning the Premier League under Claudio Ranieri and there was no fluke in that. Something clicked in that team. They wanted to play together. They wanted to be united. Whereas every time Newcastle did something well under Bruce, it felt less about a strategic move to improvement. And it didn't feel that exciting and ambitious. It just felt like a massive sigh of relief because something had gone right once, but you knew after it, something was just as likely to go wrong again. And that's not progress per se. That's just staving off the tide of relegation and doom and gloom. And when Ashley has left and now Bruce has left, that cloud of doom and gloom has gone because I think fans can see whatever happens in the short term, that there's a genuine ambition fueled or coupled with a limitless potential. And that's the difference. You know, Steve Bruce was never going to escape the same connotations, the same conclusions the same opinions that Mike Ashley catalyzed because to some extent fans saw them as one and the same, which is a shame for Steve because under this ownership group in a hypothetical, if he was given free reign, who knows what he'd be able to do, but he's never going to be able to escape that kind of stigma that Mike Ashley almost placed upon him by employing him. And that's why I think the new ownership group have rightly and quickly decided to make a fresh start. 
Yeah, sadly, he painted a picture of, um, you know, uh, uh, of, of, of abuse. I mean, we all suffer it. You do, I do. You know, social media. Steve Bruce isn't on Twitter, but of course his family, you know, Alex Bruce in particular are on there. He painted a picture of that and, you know, almost hard done by. But in, in the grand scheme of things, he got off, I felt, a little bit lightly. We did have COVID. Um, there was no fans in the ground for a great period of time. Um, so he, he did get a bit of a free reign there. He would have got a lot more stick-at-home games, I think, um, in the season before last, uh, had there been supporters in. And in the grand scheme of things, like you said, right at the top of the programme, he, he got a big payout, you know. And again, it's that old adage of, you know, football managers get paid for failure, get well paid for failure. And, you know, the estimated payoff of around about three million pounds will will certainly sweeten any abuse that he that he did suffer. And I'm not saying any of it is right. None of it is right. None of us should have to suffer uh any abuse, especially personal abuse where, you know, cabbages and various other things he referred to are are, are hurled around at, you know, just, just at the drop of a hat on social media. But it's the world unfortunately we live in. And until social media companies crack down on that, we're all gonna put up with it. But I would take being called a cabbage to, to you know, if I was going to get a three million pound payoff, Ben, I'm sure you would as well. If every time someone calls me Stephen Merchant, then I'm getting a million <laughs> quid or something. Then <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it's um, look, it's in the past. Um, and like I said, this is a pre-record. So we may be we may be old news now, but let's look at the potentials uh, for coming into St. James's Park. Fonseca at, the, at this time of you know doing this podcast seems to be the favourite. Eddie Howe <clears throat> led to believe that he's been knocking at the door of St James's Park. He may well have already been interviewed by the uh, the potential new owners. Who knows? Um, other names that have been thrown into the mix. Uh, Stephen Gerrard um, watched his interview. I'm sure you did on Sky News um, prior to last weekend's fixtures, uh, where he was very cute. Uh, let's face it, he's boot room Liverpool boot room trained with interviews, but didn't really say that he didn't want the Newcastle job and wouldn't take it if, if, it, if, it, if it could be sorted out. Lampard, of course, not everyone's favourite, but up-and-coming young you know, manager, hungry, did well at Chelsea when they had the transfer embargo, works well with youngsters, uh, could be just the right fit. And then if people are talking about short-term fixes, if they've got another name in mind who may be contracted and may, you know, may be easier to move or, or persuade to come in the summer potentially looking at the likes of Roy Hodgson, despite his age, um, you know, who has just stepped down from Crystal Palace and done a pretty good job there, it has to be said, in, uh, you know, in keeping Crystal Palace as a, as a Premier League force. Again, another name mentioned, but, you know, what's your take? And we can't hold you, hold you to account if the appointment's already been made, but, uh, you know, what, what would you say and who would you say would be a good fit? I think the best fit and proof that this consortium are planning in the long run is actually to look at this season as that shorter term fix to make sure that they stave off relegation and ensure that they get to a January transfer window with things in relatively good shape. And the challenge for that is that Newcastle's fixtures in December are horrific, starting with Leicester in mid-December, and then they've got to play a range of top teams. The danger is, is that if things are not turned around now, that January window might be quite difficult to navigate. And it's all very well saying, but we've got money, we're going to get Mbappe and Haaland and so on, but they're not going to want to come to a team that's in the relegation zone, that have got no chance of making any European football in the next 12 months and so on. So the reason I say long-term is because I would prefer to see the consortium work out who senior in the football team are they going to appoint and how are those people going to input to who the long-term manager of Newcastle United is. So if they've got a director of football in mind, if they've got other senior staff like a CEO already, then they may already think about who they want to employ. But one of the worst things they can do is just plunge for a name because now the clock is ticking on replacing Steve Bruce rather than staying with Graham Jones for a little bit and then find there's not the right fit with all of the other senior people that they bring into the club. In which case, my preference would be to look at somebody that can definitely get Newcastle well away from the relegation zone, whether that's an interim manager like Jones or if that's somebody else that is a little bit of a Premier League specialist that will know exactly how to work with this crop of players and bring in one or two savvy names that can get Newcastle, ironically, where Bruce had them, which was in mid-table and then build towards next season. 
So if you set that as the criterion, then actually your manager is not the most important appointment at this point. It's your other senior members of football staff and decision makers. But if we talk specifics in that ilk, then who might keep Newcastle United up or get them out of trouble quickly? And I don't necessarily think that is Frank Lampard or Steven Gerrard, because he's not used to being in that environment either. He played for Liverpool. He's managed Rangers. I know he's taken Rangers up and he's won a championship there, but he's not been involved in a Premier League relegation battle. So that's when I start looking a bit further down the list and saying somebody like a Hodgson, if it's only short term, could be quite useful. Graham Potter is another name that I think could deserve a chance. And Eddie Howe. And of those names, I think Potter and Howe would be excellent. And Potter's the kind of person for me that could actually take Newcastle United out of trouble and then build, whereas Hodgson would only be short term for me. So if that's your kind of yardstick of let's think long term, let's make sure we've got all the right decision makers in place, the right structure in place, then let's see collaboratively who the long term manager of Newcastle United is going to be then you're actually just looking for one of those names that I've mentioned. And my preference would be Potter, but I can absolutely see how being the right fit as well. But if we're just looking at names and forgetting about that backroom staff and those senior executives and decision makers that might take a little bit longer to become available and get, then I think Fonseca is the best fit for Newcastle. And the reason for that is because a lot of people might not realise I was at Roma for six months as well, working as a consultant and across their digital spaces and Fonseca was there. So day on day, I've seen a lot of Roma training sessions. I've seen how he operates behind the field. I know that he's got excellent man management. And more than that as well, he's a bit like Brendan Rodgers at Leicester. He makes sure he knows everybody's name. He makes sure that he has that same relationship with his star player as the cleaner or the chef or a security guard at the training centre or on a match day. And that personal nature and that bond with the players is going to be really important. Not everybody at Roma liked him, it has to be said. He's got a very patient, methodical style of training players. And the one criticism was that training sometimes at Roma did get a bit formulaic and bland. And he can be a bit of a hard taskmaster. And then on a match day, much like Lampard actually at Chelsea and some would say Benitez, he very much wanted structure. So you'll see his teams burst forward with a lot of pace and what looks like spontaneity. But that's quite deceptive because the way he sets up a team is really quite defensively structured. He builds his way through the thirds. He plays short passes, but then he uses his wide players, particularly his wide defenders and his midfielders to kind of bomb forward on the overlap. And then he wants a target man. And Newcastle are going to have to think in the long run about who that kind of target man might be. So the kind of ASMs and the Wilsons and some have even said on Twitter, Shah coming back into the side would work very well under him. But my one kind of concern is, is he exactly the right fit tactically and for this current dressing room? And the answer is only a maybe there. But where he becomes a right fit is he will play the style of football that Newcastle want in the long run. It will be structured, but still attack minded. And he will have good clout to get in the right caliber of players to transition Newcastle's squad from one that isn't that deep and is inconsistent and is defensively weak to one that is very well structured defensively and has that potential to sign players that can elevate Newcastle from hovering mid-table to relegation to hovering mid-table to challenging for Europe. And that's the next step to be that side that when you're bad, you're 12th. And when you're good, you're sixth. And you do that for a season or two and Leicester have done that. And then you move from being a side that when you're bad, you're eighth to when you're good, you're fourth and then your Champions League. And then three to five years later, you start challenging for titles and being regulars in the Champions League. It's easier said than done, but he's the kind of manager that could implement a strategy, a style, a structure, a backroom staff and bring in the right signings, I believe, to do that. So he would be my number one long-term choice. But if you just put him in right now and said, keep Newcastle United up, the irony is, as an Eddie Howe, a Graham Potter, a Roy Hodgson would be much better because they've obviously got the Premier League knowledge and they've been there before. 
Yeah, I think Fonseca would be good for it. I didn't know that you'd worked at Roma uh, doing that. So that, that is interesting to have that kind of knowledge. And of course, if he is appointed, then uh, you know we'll, we'll get you back on and, and have a chat about that. We did ask a lot of people for questions for you, Ben. And uh, we did have a bit of a laugh with people on Twitter. People were saying, well, you'll only need three questions because Ben does go on a bit with his answers. But uh, <laughs> uh, Big, Big P uh, got in first, so we'll give him the honour of a question. He says, should we as supporters be cautious? It was positive when Mike Ashley bought us. The noises coming out of the club via journalists close to the new owner suggest modest transfer budgets. Feels like we should expect organic growth, not a Man City, uh, like the national press suggest. I feel like we are an investment for an investment fund, which has been pitched as an investment by Stavely, not a vanity project for, of an oil state. I hope I'm wrong, but I expect it to be better than Ashley, but certainly not what the gossip columns are implying. What's your take on that? Oh, Ben, keep your answers short and then chuck me the most complicated yeah. five-part question imaginable. <laughs> touching a It wasn't me! Morality, oil. I mean, I'm just going to flip it on you first. I do have an answer for this, but you're the fan. Yeah. Are you cautious? Am I cautious? Hmm. I think after the euphoria of, of seeing Ashley leave... I am more cautious because I certainly was one of those supporters who celebrated at Mike Ashley coming in. I fell for it hook, line and sinker. And I read that article in United magazine, which I've referred to on many interviews. It used to be the, the club publication where Mike Ashley more or less told us what the next 14 years had in store for us. And there was one little paragraph, Ben, where he said, I have bought Newcastle United to promote my sports brand globally. That was the line. He told us what he was going to do 14 years ago, and that's all he's done. He didn't say, I bought Newcastle United to win trophies. I bought Newcastle United to, to challenge in the Champions League and have European football. He bought it to promote his business, and that's what he's done. So we shouldn't have been surprised. So am I cautious? Yes, I would say I am, because everything that glitters isn't gold, and... Ultimately, although I'm over the moon that you know that, that you know these owners have come in, um, I think it only it, it only pays to be cautious. And I think that the words that we heard them utter on camera, the very first words we heard Mia, Dad, and Amanda say was, "It's going to take time." So I would say yes, be cautious, but also be happy because these people will invest in the right areas, and they'll certainly give us a lot more to spend in the transfer window than Mike Ashley ever did. I think the caution comes from the natural level of ambition. And you almost have to, as you said, with the patients, be aware that what they say sounds so scintillating, but what they do is going to be a much slower process. It's almost like the takeover itself, that when it first landed, everyone went berserk with joy and some trepidation, but then it still took 18 months to complete. And the Newcastle project for them isn't going to get to the kind of exciting things they're saying that quickly. I think you're looking at three to five years. There might be a box office signing. There might be a cup run. Who knows? Things can happen crazily fast in football. But what you're looking to build is foundations. And if in three to five years... Newcastle fans can see foundations and there's a lot of easy foundational wins for this new ownership group because they're ultimately painting over and bettering 14 years of kind of unlove and whether they bring in an ambassador, whether they stick Shearer back on the bar, whether they give the Newcastle United Supporters Trust a place on the board, big or small, every little touch they do is going to be seen as kind of class and it's going to alleviate that caution. So even in the last week at the time of speaking, we've seen probably upwards of five Newcastle statements, which is five more than in the last 14 years. And that's partially a way of alleviating caution. So that helps. But another word, along with patience, is kind of authenticity. And over time, fans are going to have to judge how authentic the new ownership group are, because through no criticism of the minority owners, everything we're seeing at the moment and everything the fans are having communicated to them 
is coming from 10% of the football club. And really, the only way that we can truly alleviate the caution is by hearing more from the 80%. And that means that Yasser Al-Rumian needs to be present, needs to be visible, needs to be open, and needs to explain we, or me, and I'm sure you as well, would like that through the media, but they don't have to go through the media. They can go direct to the fans as well through forums and supporters groups and so on. But the second part of the question was about this oil state and sports washing and all the things we've kind of spoken about in the backdrop to the takeover being completed. And there's definitely caution there because PIF, in other words, the 80% majority owner of Newcastle and the ones with most of the money, I say most because the Rubin brothers have got lots of money too, but the vast majority of money being injected into the club will come through PIF. And if that ownership group isn't as open, isn't as transparent, uses the minority owners to be the visible presence, isn't seen at St. James's Park, doesn't explain what they're hoping to gain away from football, that's when alarm bells start ringing. And similarly, if they have decision-making power over key appointments and those appointments are being made without the football expertise of others, then that would cause alarm bells. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if they suddenly want Rooney because of what he did on the field and that's why they're looking at Lampard and that's why they're looking at Gerrard, if they suddenly just dictate, we want this star name, doesn't really matter that he's passed it. It's just because it will be good for us. It will be good for Saudi. If they suddenly start saying you're coming to Saudi tomorrow to play lots of exhibition games and all that starts affecting the football team, the football culture, then the fans over time will realise that the ownership group they've inherited comes with certain catches and we don't know what they are yet. There may not even be any and everyone would like to go in with an open mind. So I'm not going to come on and say it's definitely going to have catches but it is a very real possibility. And the catches I'm talking about are not the human rights things, are not the piracy things. That's backdrop things. That's political things. Those are hurdles that, whether rightly or wrongly, have been overcome. I'm talking about day-to-day -day catches in the running of the club, in the appointments of the club, in the players that are signed, in how the money's spent. And there's a very real danger that, over time, PIF's agenda becomes bigger than the football club agenda. But that is also the same at a lot of football clubs as well. The brand versus the football club are always going to have overlap. They're always going to complement each other, but there will always be some friction as well. And if you want the football club to grow, you have to, to some extent, surrender the brand identity and the culture of the football club. How far, in this case, only time will tell. And I think the final thing I'd say is specifically referenced in that question was oil state. That's probably less of a concern because it's key that fans understand that the vision 2030 that PIF must implement and will to some extent tie in with Newcastle United, that's about moving away from oil and its basic mission is to try and develop things like investments that allow Saudi Arabia to sustain itself away from the oil industry. So they're not suddenly going to tie themselves in with oil left, right and centre. They're going to tie themselves in with Vision 2030 goals, which is to invest wisely in a way that sustains Saudi Arabia and its culture and its people without the reliance on oil. And that means a better quality of life. It means more jobs. It means tying themselves with global investment in a way that takes Saudi Arabian culture and business outside of Saudi Arabia and into other sectors, particularly global sectors. And Newcastle United can help with that. And in that respect, there's not much caution there. It's just a case of getting used to different sponsors, different branding. And it was exactly the same at Leicester, who put King Power on their shirts who renamed their stadium, who put Visit Thailand for a little bit on their shirts, who sold the football shirts in the airport, who brought Leicester to Bangkok within 48 hours of them winning the Premier League, who went to Thailand twice for pre-season, who tied up with Thai academies and brought players at youth level over to the King Power Stadium to train, who started selling Thai beer on a match day. And nobody says, 
oh, Leicester have sold out. They're no longer the same club. They're no longer the same brand. It'll be very similar, I think, over time with Newcastle. But Newcastle's under more of a microscope than Leicester. And dare I say, I might ask you to edit this bit out, are a bigger club than Leicester. Certainly a bigger brand than Leicester. I should have whispered that because I am a Leicester <laughs> brand. But the point is, the bigger the brand, the more the scrutiny. So Leicester can sell Thai beer and everyone just goes, that's pretty nice. Leicester can have Thai monks coming over to bless the players before every single game during their Premier League winning season. And nobody says like, yikes, what's all this about? It's just kind of fun and interesting and culturally respectful and quirky and we're winning. So it's working and nobody thinks anything of it. But if Newcastle did something similar, there may be more outrage and scrutiny because, again, he whispers it's a bigger football club. So there's an element of caution for sure. And I think I've answered that as concisely as I can, despite the fact that's quite a long answer, but you chucked me a very difficult question to kick things off. Great question. And um, yeah, we, we did get plenty of them. And uh, see, it's only an hour long programme. But look, I, I do enjoy it. And you, den you do when you answer, Ben, you always tend to cover more than you know, one of the questions anyway. So it's, it's always good. Big shout out to our sponsors, uh, as always, SpiderVPN. Uh, Google Spider VPN. They come up at the top of your search list. They can protect your computer, protect your passwords, protect your photographs. They are the boys to trust. And skipsandbins.com. Telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website www.skipsandbins.com. Easy contract, free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Also, thanks to LNG Family Funeral Directors, 01913897245. And qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle. And a jab signature for producing all of our flyers. If you want to subscribe to the channel, please hit the Newcastle Legends logo in the bottom right-hand corner. And that is it. You subscribe for free. Seven shows a week. Uh, as always, hit the thumb up to like the video, click share to share your other social media and drop into the comments to speak to like-minded Newcastle fans. Uh, we're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and other podcast providers. Uh, some big events coming up this week, starting with Gavin Peacock, 29th of October at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets are £15. Gavin will be launching his book officially in Newcastle at that event. Our belated Christmas party, which of course Ben. You're more than welcome to travel to Newcastle too and come and have a free drink on us November the 19th, uh, which is 7pm at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets £12. All proceeds from that event are going to the food bank. Over 125 tickets sold already for that. And uh, the Tyneside Irish Centre again, <clears throat> an evening with Peter Beardsley, 26th of November. Uh, and tickets for all three events are available from newcastlelegends.com. Just click shop uh, and the tickets for the beards, the event are £15. Uh, and a one coming up uh, this week on Thursday, tomorrow night, uh, as the show goes out on Wednesday. A night with Rob Lee, uh, which is in Whitby Bay. You can get your last minute tickets from www.laurelswhitley.co.uk. And another food bank event at the uh, Bobix Bar in Jesmond. Bobix.com. Again, all proceeds going to the food bank. Join me and Supermac as we will be talking and taking your questions about Newcastle United. You can always donate to the food bank from nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk. And uh, that is through the virtual match day bucket, 365 days a year. You can put money into that. Well worth uh, popping your well-earned cash into there and supporting a good cause. Don't forget as well, uh, we have got a pair of signed Peter Beardsley custom-made trainers in your size uh, from I Am The Renovation. And again, that is the Food Bank Raffle, nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk. Tickets are a pound each to win a pair of signed, custom-made Peter Beardsley trainers. And you've got the McEwen's Lager shirt on the side there and Peter Beardsley's name, the Premier League badge on the back. Well worth getting involved in that if you just want to donate some money to the Food Bank and uh, possibly win yourself a nice pair of sneaks. And uh, on to the next question, uh, we will go with Clarko. He says, if the sponsorship ban is made permanent, is there ways that the new owners can get around this so they can still maximise sponsorship revenue the best way that they can? So the sponsorship ban won't be made permanent. That's an impossible scenario. And the temporary ban 
has only been agreed by the clubs so they can find a solution which in all likelihood will be a rule change of sorts or an agreement between the clubs. If beyond the month there was any longer term extension that actually blocked related party trades, then that would be illegal. And the other clubs wouldn't be re-voting for that because they're tying their own hands as far as business is concerned. So it's not a concern at all. And the initial ban, although provoked by the Newcastle takeover quite clearly and although very confrontational by 18 of the 20 Premier League clubs, is really more about putting on the agenda a better way of regulating what are called RPTs, related party trade, so that when deals are brokered in that particular area, there's what's called fair market value. And what's going to happen over the course of the next month is the block on any deals will force all of the clubs, including the 18 that voted for it, to find a solution here. Otherwise, as I say, at the end of that month, they're not going to be able to do any business in this particular area. But there's nothing that requires Newcastle or any other club to try and get around the block. Firstly, because as I say, it won't last forever. I don't think it will last any longer than the current month. But secondly, because there's nothing wrong with related party trade. The only question is, is it being declared and is it being regulated as far as its fair market value is concerned? So at the moment, under financial fair play, if it is declared, and a lot of people have asked me about, say, King Power and Leicester, and again, that's legal, it is deemed fair market value and it's declared. So if Newcastle United do a piece of commercial business that falls under a related party trade, if they declare it, there's really not a problem. And then UEFA have every right to investigate that under financial fair play if they so wish or if they suspect that it's being used to try and get around the current rules in financial fair play. The challenge is financial fair play is changing, it's effectively dying, and the pandemic has left windows for clubs to ultimately find loopholes to get around its current rules. But that's a whole other debate. But I think not every fan has understood that related party trade is not rule breaking. 99 times out of 100 in any sector or industry, it's normal and it's natural. But you declare it in case there's a conflict of interests or in case you are seen to have come to a deal that isn't at fair market value. So then the second point is, how do you prove fair market value? And that's the kind of wider debate. And I think that's what's really peeved off the other clubs, particularly, obviously, outside of Newcastle and Manchester City. And on Newcastle and Manchester City side will also be a PSG as well. That when you undergo fast transformation with rich ownership and foreign ownership in a new sector with huge commercial potential, it is very difficult to quantify what fair market value is unless you only use quantitative data. In other words, cold, hard financial facts at the time of the deal. And during my time in the Middle East, I've worked with a number of football clubs that have come over there for various reasons. Either they've wanted an owner, they've wanted a shirt sponsor, they've wanted to play a game over there. And usually the deals have staggered structures, certainly the ones that I've worked on in the past. So one football club who I obviously can't name due to confidentiality came looking for a shirt sponsor and the deal with the particular prospective commercial client was we'll buy the shirt sponsorship now. But if you get relegated because of your current league position, we want a refund of X. And similarly, if you get into Europe, we'll pay you Y. And there's other clients that would say, we want to pay you a flat rate right now, but we don't want it going up at all if you end up in the Champions League because we think we're paying over the odds. So these conversations for fair market value are not just happening between 
a rival club and Newcastle United potentially doing a deal, they're also happening between the football club and the sponsor, both battling for the best price. But of course, when you have a RPT, there perhaps is seen to be a relationship where both the commercial client and the football club are on the same side and they're doing a deal for the benefit of the football club and for the benefit of keeping within financial fair play. And that's when potentially there needs to be external regulation and there needs to be more input allowed by UEFA if it isn't even declared as an RPT in the first place. And the complication in this particular scenario is what if Newcastle United do a deal with, let's say, a government television broadcaster? And the Premier League have already said that they are happy that there is legal separation between PIF and the Saudi Arabian state. And if that television broadcaster has no direct link back to PIF, then does that count as a related party trade? And many would say yes, because they don't buy that there is any separation between PIF and the Saudi Arabian state. But the Premier League have already said on record that there is a legally binding separation. So at that point, who would look at that deal? Who would investigate the relationship? Because there will be crossover in personnel as we find at PIF with Mohammed bin Salman on PIF's board and their ultimate decision maker. So these kind of conversations could happen down the line, but who's dissecting them? Who's regulating them? And I think the club's point at the moment is just that they fear Newcastle and Manchester City can find someone in their region that they know and bank upon the fact that in Newcastle's case, it's a new takeover. So there's going to be interest in Saudi Arabia and everyone knows they're rich and everyone knows the football team are likely to improve. So how much in a deal today with them in the relegation zone can you forget about now and base upon where you think the club might be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? Or how much can you just decide to pay now because you're glad that the football club have an affinity with Saudi Arabia and your region. So that has market value. BN's license being restored adds market value to any commercial deal because Newcastle United can now be seen legally within the Middle East and North Africa, including in Saudi Arabia. And a sponsor from Saudi Arabia will obviously get better value if they're on the front of the shirt, if Newcastle are legally available to watch within Saudi Arabia. So you know, you can argue there's so many different ways, and that's the challenge, defining what fair market value is. But the short answer to the question is that there's nothing to worry about with the block, and I don't see the Premier League or its clubs coming to an easy solution on how to definitively define what fair market value is. That's something that UEFA should be leading on when financial fair play post-pandemic is redefined. And the simplest way is for all the clubs to agree and the Premier League to agree and UEFA to lead on this to get European unity and buy-in for everybody to say, in this case, let's let an independent regulator deal with it. And if that happens, it would take time and Newcastle United would have nothing to worry about. But we shouldn't be in a scenario where Newcastle's rival clubs, straight off the back of a takeover, are challenging hypothetical commercial deals that haven't yet been made because to me that just seems confrontational and counterproductive okay darren tanix says uh, do you believe that uh, we treated steve bruce unfairly when he says we he means the supporters it's a good question i think we touched upon it right at the beginning of the show would the newcastle united fan base have treated steve bruce the same way if there was no takeover on the table and the answer is probably no. However, the caveat is if there was no takeover, Mike Ashley probably would have treated Steve Bruce a lot differently as well. My understanding is that Steve Bruce's payoff is so big because Mike Ashley basically gave him a kind of rolling three-year contract, which means that every day Steve Bruce woke up, he had the same amount of time left on his contract, which means that his payoff was always going to be huge. And I believe he did that because he felt that he wouldn't ever be paying that bill. And he was right because it's the consortium that are having to come in and find another 8 million to get rid of a manager that 
really Mike Ashley should have got rid of, and as I say, would have got rid of, in my opinion, if he either didn't want to sell the club or he didn't have any willing buyer because he would have known that he would have had to act at that point. So I think like the fan distaste for Steve Bruce is fair in the sense that the way the team played, some of the tactical decisions and the substitutions wasn't entertaining. It wasn't logical at times. There was no structure. There was no plan. There was no balance to the team. But he did ultimately get you mid-table finishes and finish last season strongly and get you out of a dire relegation straight under difficult circumstances. And as somebody that grew up, I know some fans dispute this, but as someone that said on record he grew up supporting Newcastle as his boyhood club, I feel like he deserved respect. And that respect also comes from the fact that, you know, he's managed a thousand games. So I think that fans jumped on the bandwagon and the initial reason why they reacted was fair. And the longer he stayed at the club, the more antagonized they got by his presence. But I think what was unfair was when, if he did something right, it was Graham Jones. And if he did something <laughs> wrong, it was Steve Bruce. And if he did something right, it was fluke. And if he did something wrong, he was destroying the club as part of Mike Ashley and the turmoil and the doom and gloom. And I think all of that was kind of too broad and too stereotypical and too generic. Because at heart, as we've seen from the player reaction, when he left by, in inverted commas, mutual consent, there were a lot of people that liked him at the club. There were a lot of people that respected him at the club. So I think fans that have attacked Steve Bruce, but done so protecting his dignity, um, have acted in a fair way because he did stay at the club for too long. But I think fans that have turned it personal or brushstroke Steve Bruce with criticisms that are too broad and are more Ashley-centric, I think have treated him a little bit harshly. And unfortunately, because of how toxic the Newcastle social media became between when we learned about the takeover and when it was finally completed, I think too much of that toxicity was used directly against Bruce. And that aspect of criticism towards Bruce, which, as I say, was personal, not professional, I think was unfair. And I certainly don't condone. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the big problem he had was, and this, the same applied to Kenny Dalglish, Ben, I've mentioned it on the show before, is that Kenny Dalglish had the unfortunate position of following Kevin Keegan into the hot seat at St James's Park. And he was on a hiding to nothing because he was always going to be judged by the previous incumbent's success, albeit success was only qualifying for Europe, finishing second, not having any success in any cups, not winning a trophy. Um, but he was always judged by that. And the fact that Keegan played such attacking football and doesn't matter if the other team scores three, we score four. Um, when Daglish came in and went for his tried and tested, we'll win one nil uh, and Shirel score uh, kind of football. Um, you know, it, it, it was never going to work. And then unfortunately for Daglish, he lost Keegan at that preseason friendly against Everton with that cruciate ligament. And he ended up with, Ferdinand going to Spurs, which was the right thing to do, but with without with hindsight, not knowing that Ferdinand was going to go to Spurs anyway and Alan was going to get injured. He was left with John Dahl Thomason up front and then had to rely on pulling in favours and bringing Russian Barnes in. He was never going to work. And that was the same for Bruce. He came in at a time when the club was toxic. Ashley said he wanted to sell. Nobody wanted to come and manage the team because of the uncertainty. Mm. 11 people had said no. Charlie brought Bruce in because Bruce had contacted him and said, I want to come in. And he was always going to be on a hiding and nothing because he was following for Benitez in. And Rafa was a fan's favourite. And and ultimately, that was that was what that was the straw that brought the camels back, as well as when he went to Sunderland, front page of the journal. Regardless of whether he writes, he doesn't write the headlines, but he did say it. He didn't ever want to manage Newcastle. And that was always going to be a problem. And put it in perspective, though, there's the figures. Mm. And that tells you the story. And 90 points, um, 23 wins for for Bruce, 20, 24 wins for Rafa, 84 goals scored for Bruce, 81 for Rafa. Goals conceded, a lot more for Bruce, it has to be said, in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's you know, it, it is a lot more. Uh, possession, 38% for Bruce, 40% for, for Benitez. It's, I mean, 
I know a lot of people don't like stats, but those kind of stats tell you, um, you know, ultimately there wasn't much difference between them. But the one difference there was, was that Bruce did get a bit more money to spend. Mm. And that, I ultimately, again, think that's down to Mike Ashley because he was the one who stuck his fingers up at Rafa when he left. You know, Rafa left, Bruce comes in and he gave him money to spend. And although it wasn't Steve Bruce getting the run of, you know, the run of the transfers, they just gave him Joe Linton. Yeah, we've paid 40 million for him. Rafa didn't want him, but you're having him. That's that's what you're getting given. And those figures are probably even a bit, you know, a, a bit unfair on Bruce because he didn't really get to spend the money. No, I mean, when you compare two managers like that, it's kind of interesting because of how similar they are, but under different circumstances, albeit the same owner. But as you say, different amounts of money to spend. But I think what would be interesting in a hypothetical and Newcastle fans would probably do their own numbers on this one, is what if you compared Steve Bruce to Rafa Benitez in two full seasons under this new ownership group, then mm. how similar would their stats be? And that's where I'm sure Newcastle fans would say, well, Bruce's would stay the same and Benitez's would triple or whatever. And they might be absolutely right. But, you know, I think looking back, Nothing under Ashley has really worked for Newcastle, whereas before Ashley came into Newcastle United, uh, I think only Manchester United had been relegated less or something was the stat. Yeah. So it shows you what a big club they were before he came in. And now with this fresh start, it's about following Bruce and hoping that the opposite to the point you made happens. So instead of whoever comes in, um, next, um, in Bruce's case, um, is always going to have a uphill challenge. Perhaps following Bruce is going to afford the next manager a lot more time and patience because of the new ambition and energy and optimism at the football club. So it will be interesting to see whether if things didn't go right with a new appointment, if the fan mood is still improved or whether actually the frustrations under Ashley never quite go away unless actually you get these sky high achievements and sort of get into Europe or win the league. The fans are obviously going to have to be patient, even with the perfect name, the anti-Bruce, the anti-Ashley ownership group in fans' eyes. That doesn't mean that this season's going to be in any way a success other than the fact that staying up and getting rid of Ashley um, is good enough to then rebuild ahead of next season. Yeah. Uh, last question uh, goes to Nick and Katie, and um, he, he highlighted on on Twitter just the, the you know the, the the spin that a few journalists had put on Newcastle fans wearing some uh, traditional Saudi dress to the game, um, and he was saying, "Do you think that the Newcastle owner found this offensive or racist?" I mean, there was definitely an irony in Newcastle saying no to absolutely all kinds of racism. And then so many fans just grabbing a tea towel and putting it around their head or turning up with an inflatable camel. What I would say, having engaged with the fans over the course of the last almost two years, is that I think many just grabbed that and felt it was fun, felt it was caricatured. They meant no harm. And Newcastle's statement says that it didn't offend any of the PIF representation, but they're bound to say that. I've lived out in the Middle East. I've been to Saudi Arabia many times. And the truth is, is that Saudi Arabian locals quite like it when an expat or a visitor wears their local dress, providing it is actually the local dress. And here's the sort of challenge. So Newcastle statement, I disagreed with a little bit because it kind of implied if it's not what you normally wear, don't wear it. But we don't normally wear football shirts, but we do to a football stadium. Why? Because we want to show support to our football team. So if people want to show support towards the ownership group, then as long as they wore the Saudi dress correctly, that would not be deemed to be offensive. And as I said before, there's plenty of Saudis that like that in Saudi Arabia. When a Westerner comes over and does that, it can be seen as a sign of respect. But what you don't do is grab a tea towel. What you don't do is turn up in an inflatable camel. That is pretty offensive. It's culturally stereotyping. Uh, it's careless. It's lazy. Uh, it's partly because fans wanted to show some kind of support, I'm sure. But there isn't just a load of shops that sell traditional Saudi garb. 
if you really wanted to wear it week in, week out as a sign of respect and not just a kind of gag or a joke or something lighthearted, at, at that point, um, you should order the sort of official garb. Because the truth is, if you walked around dressed like that in Saudi Arabia, there's a very real danger that you could be arrested because there's a whole dress code out there that stipulates fines and punishments. So fans do have to be a little bit careful not to culturally stereotype. And the yeah. reason for that to try and kind of explain it as briefly as I can is because this isn't just a dress. It's not just something that a local wears. It, it has a specific cultural identity, the way it's tied, the colors that are used are representative of different families, different sects, different religions, different classes, all across the Middle East and North Africa. And you and me might not notice the difference looking at it with the kind of naked eye, but the colors that are used, the patterns that are used, they're all potentially family crests. And to a Saudi Arabian walking around, they can learn from the different aspects of the dress the place you're from, the family you're from, potentially your level of affluence. And similarly, if other people from the Middle East are wearing it, they can tell the difference between someone from the UAE, someone from Saudi Arabia and so on. And it's important, therefore, to understand um, that this isn't just a kind of white kefir that if you've got a tea towel, you can turn black and white, or if you're a Sunderland fan, red and white. It's much more intricate than that. Uh, and as I say, different tribes, countries, neighbourhoods all have their different colours of uh, the so-called kefir, uh, as it's known in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the headwear uh, can be what's called a kalansuwa, uh, a turban, uh, an imama, or the more common uh, name or, or type is the kefir. So what a fan might be doing inadvertently, particularly to a more conservative Saudi, um, is just grabbing their tea towel and imitating the look. And that is offensive and it is culturally stereotyping it, even if um, they don't mean to. And again, the ownership group could do something very um, opposite to the statement that they put out. And they could work with a Saudi retailer uh, to uh, develop a, a line of Newcastle United kefirs uh, that are culturally appropriate and can be bought by fans, uh, particularly perhaps uh, religious fans or uh, maybe um, those uh, from... Uh, the Saudi Arabian area that want more of an affinity with Newcastle United because there will be some fans traveling over that either due to their religion or due to the fact that culturally it's what they want to wear from Saudi Arabia they might want to travel over to St James's Park and they might not want to wear a Newcastle United shirt especially not whilst it's got Fun 88 a gambling partner right on the front of it and that's where something a bit more official led by the club can lead the cultural agenda and make sure that it's not insensitive. They can seek Saudi collaboration and they can commercialize that. And then if fans still want to wear that, because actually it's not a gimmick and it's just what they choose to do, they can do so in a culturally appropriate way. But my fear at the moment is just too many fans just think it's funny and they don't realize that it is quite offensive, especially when you're not actually wearing authentic um, Arabic dress, if you like, or in this case, uh, Saudi headwear, when you are just grabbing your tea towel and tying it around your neck, uh, you might find it amusing, but I can guarantee that not every Saudi Arabian would. So I'd encourage fans um, not to uh, be culturally dissensitive. Um, and if they do genuinely still feel compelled to wear it, uh, to realize that there's plenty in Saudi Arabia that will see that as a sign of respect, but providing you wear it properly and in a uh, authentic manner. Well said, mate. Yeah, I think that's good. And a great idea. I mean, commercial opportunity there, as you say, potentially developing uh, a specific look for Newcastle fans wouldn't be a bad idea. But I've, I've got to say there are comparisons um, throughout our history. Um, I mentioned it on the show with Holly last week. Uh, Newcastle United, when they signed Francisco and Lima da Silva, better known as Mirandina, um, we all bought sombreros, uh, not realising, of course, the sombreros are actually from Mexico not from Brazil, but we all wore them at the match. And then in not so recent times under Mike Ashley and under the manager uh, manager of uh, Alan Pardew, Newcastle United, of course, uh, raided the French market on more than one occasion under Graham Carr's um, scouting stewardship. And uh, we actually had a French day 
where a majority of fans came with their black and white uh, French style tops, berries and onions and garlic around their neck. <laughs> so we did actually have an official French day. So it's not the first time Newcastle fans have got into the spirit of things. Um, so I would like to say that anybody who is watching in Saudi, and I know we do have a few Saudi viewers, uh, it certainly wasn't meant as an offensive term. And I, and I, I think I could speak for virtually everyone in the ground um, on that. And uh, I don't think it's something that will be a recurring uh, theme. Uh, I think it was really just for the overall takeover. Um, look, the clock has beaten us. I would urge everyone to follow Jacobs, uh, Ben, Ben Jacobs on Twitter. Um, crack and thread. And this is what led to me asking Ben to come on tonight. It was um, 13th of October. Uh, he posted a wonderful thread. We haven't got time to go through it. It would have taken over the whole show. But it's just Ben's thoughts on PIF's uh, KSA specific uh, broader uh, ideas and what they might do. Um, obviously, relates a lot to Vision 2030, uh, potential commercial ideas. Ben's already touched on that on the show tonight. Potential sponsors. Potential ideas. He's also touched on, you know, maybe Newcastle might end up going to Saudi. More than likely, the first team will end up going out there and playing some kind of game. Uh, even talks of a, um, you know, a potential, uh, uh, you know, a potential event or big events taking place and, and, you know, big, big tournaments out there. Maybe he's involved in other teams. Uh, yeah, I did have to laugh at the last the last point where he said, thankfully, no idea, uh, no thoughts of a Real Madrid style theme park. But hey, <laughs> you never know. The Spanish city was very popular up here, Ben. How about the Saudi city? <laughs> it would be funny. I mean, that was in Russell Keimer in the UAE and it got funded. And Newcastle just have to be wary of that. Like, I know we've run out of time, but in 30 seconds, yeah, there'll be on. two kind of aspects one is what PIF and the club want to do. And one is other people coming to the club and saying, put your name to this. So like a theme park would just be, hi, Newcastle, here's a load of money. We'll, be the, we'll build a theme park and it will have your name on it. And that's what happened with Real Madrid. And then the people saying they'll build it never had the money. It was all speculative and it was an embarrassment to Real Madrid. So Newcastle have to be wary of that aspect of just people coming to them and saying, put your name on this and we'll run it for you. No effort, no work. We just want to use your name. Because they don't know, PIF will, but those at the club at the moment who know football won't know Saudi Arabia. And those that know Saudi Arabia at the moment don't know Newcastle. So that's why Amanda Staveley and the Rubin brothers have got such an important role to play, even though they're the minority owners. But I think, yeah, read the thread. It's going to be interesting who the front of shirt sponsor will be. They'll definitely go over there. They'll end up playing the Saudi Arabian national team or a hybrid of local Saudi teams, which is what PSG are doing in January. They're playing a 11 made up of Al Nasser and Al Hilal players, two of the biggest clubs in Saudi Arabia. And Arsene Wenger is that coach. So that kind of thing will happen over time. And it will provide exposure in Saudi Arabia. It provides jobs in Saudi Arabia during the event. It provides sponsorship opportunities to those backing those events. And perhaps most importantly, in the short term, the Saudi Arabian national broadcaster will be able to buy the rights to televise that. So they'll be able to actually give Newcastle exposure away from just their day-to-day -day competitive games on BN Sports. Uh, which is the priority of the new Saudi broadcaster to actually air things that are specifically on Saudi soil. And then you'll see them go to Neon as well, which is a more westernized Dubai-like super city that's going to be the home of a lot of sport. I went over there to see that um, only a few years ago before the pandemic when the Beach Soccer World Cup was on. Um, and it's superb in terms of its infrastructure, its hospitality, its scenery, and there'll be sports science facilities out there uh, where players can go for recovery and recuperation, a bit like the Aspire facility in Qatar. So all of that will be utilised over time and Newcastle will be brought over to Saudi Arabia. The shirts will be sold, no doubt, at the airport once they get the gaming partner off it anyway. So there's lots to look forward to, but those are Saudi-centric brand goals rather than football goals. And again, Newcastle fans should always look at this venture like any big club in that two-tiered approach. It's a perfectly normal strategy, by the way. What's going to happen on the football field and what's going to happen with the brand? And the football is less controllable, but at least you know the end goal. Everyone wants the same thing, winning a title, winning a cup, getting into the Champions League, winning the Champions League. But the brand is where there'll be a bit more friction because you're 
ownership group might want different things with the brand fans might want different things with the brand PAF might want different things with the brand so that's probably the thing that's going to cause the most uh, contention but it's also going to be one of the most ambitious brand strategies uh, we've ever seen in football which will commercially benefit Newcastle which will obviously have a knock-on effect on the football field so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with all of that uh, read the thread and seeing as we've run out of time, happy to answer any questions via Twitter, where uh, thankfully for those listening, uh, I've only got a limited amount of characters. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having you back on again. And uh, of course, I think we'll probably target uh, Sunday the 12th of December because Newcastle play Leicester away now, uh, live mm-hmm. on Sky. So I think we'll get you on that weekend uh, to, to, to get your prediction, mate. It should be good. I look forward to it, as long as it's not a repeat of last time they came to the King Power. <laughs> yeah, we might have got our mojo, might have got a new manager by then. But uh, Ben, as always, absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you, mate. Take care and speak to you soon. Great stuff, Steve. Talk soon. Cheers. Talking